Hey everyone, it's Patrick Inhofer with MixingLight.com, and I am back with Eric Bowden from North Kentucky University. He's also a consultant at ADK. This is part three of our series on basically building out a PC for DaVinci Resolve, and we've also been talking about Premiere Pro setups and the differences between them. Now here in part three, and Eric, thank you very much for joining us. No problem at all. Glad I could be back. So, Eric, now, obviously, the first thing we want to say is what, what we're trying not to do here is become certified builders. What we're trying to do is just get a sense from, you know, us creatives uh, what our hardware choices are because in the PC world, it's you're not just buying HP or Dell. It's not like you have a binary choice or in the Mac world, you have a single choice. Here we have tons and tons of literally unlimited configurations, and that's where a guy like Eric comes in. So what we're talking about is you can save money by doing this all by yourself and then figuring it out and bashing your head against the, the wall, or you can bring in someone like Eric who can at least give you guidance and help and, and help you shepherd you through the process. Is that pretty much how you, you see what you do? Yeah, I mean, essentially what we do is go over the, you know, different hardware options based on the requirements that the customer or, you know, the, the editor is, is talking to us about and what they need. And then, you know, we will give them a scope of options, you know, both the ideal hardware options that they would most likely want and then the, you know, more budget oriented options based on what their overall budget is going to be. But it's all built around the media that they use, you know, the extent of the, you know, type of projects they're working on, and then what they state, you know, the requirements are as far as uh, storage or redundancy or backup or that kind of thing. All right, so there's a lot of customization depending on what exactly it is you're doing. In fact, we were just talking, um, you have another customer who has a build very similar to mine. We've got one difference. I've got an external box where I'm sitting my Decklink card. He doesn't, and he's having all sorts of problems where mine is just working swimmingly. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's challenges we run into, and we you know run into it in the audio world. We definitely run into it in the video world, and it, it really has to do with uh, the amount of cards that you're putting in your system, as in the PCI Express cards. Right. And then, you know, how those cards resource out as far as memory ranges uh, and the slots that they go in and whether the drivers or the firmware on the cards are, you know, will initialize correctly and will work in those memory ranges for those uh, slots. So some it is quite common where we have to, you know, move cards around to see if, you know, certain cards will work together that don't in uh, slot configurations that we initially try and then when manufacturers make changes you know oftentimes Blackmagic for example updates a driver for their deck link cards and there's a firmware update requirement and that can change the compatibility again so it, unfortunately it is something that you, you know you do have to go through quite often especially when you're dealing with uh, high performance computing workstations for like DaVinci Resolve, where you do use a lot of PCI Express cards with more than one video card. All right, so now let's jump into our questions that we got on our website from parts one and two, I believe. And this one's from Ryan Schroeder, and he, and he says his company owns 
a red 6K Dragon, uh, 8K Epic W, so they, they grade lots of that kind of footage. But they also got clients with long GOP codecs, 4K H.264 from like DJIs. And he's thinking that when it comes to CPUs, that the extra money on a dual Xeon setup would be better allocated than towards a single core higher clock i7 with a Red Rocket X. So he's looking at either, okay, I go with the dual Xeon or I go with the i7 and a Red Rocket X. Uh, he's thinking dual Xeon. What, or what do you think? Well, the considerations here for one right off the bat is the Red Rocket series cards are basically being phased out you know from everything red's saying at this point because of the gpu acceleration so you know having a configuration build based on the red rocket uh cards is probably not a very good idea uh the other consideration to this is long gop codecs pretty much all of them have far more limited threading due to how data prediction has to work in the long GOP codex for all the partial frames. Right. And they don't thread as well, which means having all the extra cores of a dual Xeon is not going to help you when you're dealing with that media. Hmm. Clock speed is going to be far more important. Now, if they're dealing with red media pretty much predominantly or raw media, uh, like DNG or RE raw, that kind of stuff, uh, or, you know, it, ProRes slash DNxHR, then the dual Xeon system will give you far more capability for FX, you know, that thread well, uh, and different types of media on your timeline than a single 10 core clock tire system is going to give you. Uh, but the render speeds will be slower. That, mm -hmm. it, that part will not change because the higher clock speed of the 10 core chip is still going to render faster than dual 12 or 14 core Xeons. So it's a mixed message. So basically the, the concept is, and in fact a member responded, uh, just like you said, that the red rocket's being phased out. So build for red and for the DI, DJI footage, um, don't really rely, don't basically don't rely on the red rocket X as your long-term solution. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do that. You you know, with DaVinci, since it scales across more than one GPU, you're going to be better off building towards GPUs. If you plan on getting more than two GPUs, then you want to start looking at getting a dual Xeon system, hmm. uh, simply because one processor, at least right now, uh, can't really feed more than two GPUs, you know, and push them close to their limits. Right, right, right. Now, it can, you know, obviously feed data to scale across, you know, three or four GPUs. You're just not going to push all the cards. In other words, you're not going to make full capability use of, you know, all three or all four cards with a single 10-core chip. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, because I've been watching my performance on, on my new rig here, and, you know, I regularly hit both GPUs. I mean, they regularly hit out at around 95 on, on some of these renders. And when I'm really playing back and I've got lots of stuff going on, I'm like, huh, I wonder if a third card would help that. And you're saying probably not. Well, it'll help. But what it's going to do, for example, is at some point the processor is not going to get enough data formatted into system RAM to essentially push all three cards for example to 90 percent right 
So, you know, if you add a third card, number one, you're going to be moving more hardware into an expansion chassis, which means that 16X lane or 8X lane that the expansion is coming off of is now going to have to negotiate, you know, more cards in there, which yeah. means you're going to have, you know, more latency with all those cards transmitting data if they're being used while you're editing. Then on top of that, you know, I would be surprised if you would get 90% load on all three cards, uh, even in a DaVinci system at this point with a 10-core chip. I just haven't seen it. Yep. So I think it, you know, the two-card two is really kind of the ideal sweet spot for a single-chip system. Three cards or more is really when you start looking at two processors because each processor has you know, a set amount of PCI express lanes, which basically is far more highways for all that data, you know, that is going to be going to the GPUs to transit on. That makes a ton of sense. And that's a, kind of a great metric. I think, you know, what a lot of the response that I was reading, people were just looking for some solid guidelines. And that's a great guideline trying to decide whether I go dual Xeon or single core higher clock is the number of GPUs you plan on using or you see yourself maybe expanding into. It is. Okay. And the only caveat really to that is render speed. Because as soon as you go to the dual Xeon, your render speeds will be, will take longer. Your, but now... Your render can, performance is going to drop. Is that something you can quantify? Like you know it's going to be 20% longer. Like a one hour render is going to take you 120? Or... It's, not is it just it's going to be slower and it depends on what you're doing and it all really the depends on what you're doing okay and what media uh, right. for dng for example cinema dng because it is so uncompressed and it's so easy for the cpus to process and format the data you will have far less performance drop using cinema dng or any type of raw or sequence of still formats that thread well when you get into codecs that don't thread as well or that are complex like red, you will have a drop in render. Yeah, it's interesting. So, But what you do get with the extra GPUs is you get uh, more likelihood of getting real-time playback with more you know, nodes thrown on and more noise reduction and things like that, right? I mean, that's what those extra That is GPUs. exactly the benefit of the dual Xeon system right. is you get much greater real-time load capability as long as all of the media and effects thread well. Right, exactly. And, and I guess in this specific instance, and I really want to talk about Resolve for this podcast, not so much on Premiere. And, and we're, we're assuming that Resolve is fairly well programmed. Because, I mean, they've got, and they do have like uh, open effects that, have, that are GPU-enabled. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you're saying is as long as you, you put those GPU-enabled things on there, you'll, you'll be getting the benefits of those extra cards. Yeah, but this is another one of those, you know, variable yeah. uh, aspects simply because not all GPU acceleration is the yeah. same. Yeah. In other words, Resolve's GPU acceleration is superior than pretty much most of the other editors out there. Yeah. Adobe is probably number two. Yeah. When you're dealing with FX, you have varying degrees of, you know, different FX that are much that have much better optimizations to them. Yep. The GPU acceleration is far more refined. Uh, their memory management profiles are far better, so you get far better performance with them, and they thread much better. In other words, if you have a dual Xeon system with, 
you know, 24 cores and uh, 48 threads, the FX will thread out on all the, you know, cores available on those FX that are highly optimized. Then you can activate another GPU acceleration plugin and it's not nearly as optimized or due to, you know, complexities like the long GOP codecs run into where they don't, you know, they can't thread as well. Yeah. They're not going to perform as well just because of the limited capability and threading. And you do run into that on some more popular effects right. uh, that are out there. Uh, neat video is one of those. I, I, I've dealt with a lot of clients that like the neat video effects, but unfortunately neat video has either had a lot of challenges in optimizing their GPU acceleration or the type of effects that they're programming are really limited in how they can predict data so they can't thread them as well. Gotcha. Let's take a question from Greg Greenhaw, and it's kind of building on the red Cinema DNG thing we've been talking about. And what he's curious about is the difference between optimizing for red versus optimizing for Cinema DNG. And is there some sort of difference in building a configuration for those two raw codecs? Well... <laughs> As far as red goes, a lot of it also depends on the compression level that you're using for red. Right. The lower the compression level, the the lower the complexity. Right. Uh, so, for example, if you have a dual Xeon system, because the clock speeds are going to be slower in the Xeon chips and you're going to have a lot more threads that you have available, more than likely want to deal with lower compression red media with that system uh, because you want to make the medias as you know lowest complexity as possible uh, as far as that goes to make use of all the cores and threads ideally that you have on the dual Xeon system at a lower clock speed. The biggest difference that you're going to run into though in general between red and DNG is disk requirement. Yeah. Um, because RAW requires a massive disk requirement over any of your compression-based codecs. A DNG RAW 4K, for example, is going to you know, average anywhere from 800 megabytes a second to 1.2 gigabytes a second on average, right. uh, which is going to require you know, multiple SSDs or a very large SAS rate. Right. Uh, bonus or the benefit of DNG is because the compression is basically non-existent I and mean, it's a completely uncompressed format, uh, the complexity is really, really low. So on a dual Xeon system, you get maximum performance with it, regardless of the amount of threads that you have. So ideally, dealing with DNG media, a dual Xeon system is going to handle it superior to everything else. Now, he has a follow-up question, and this is a total switch of topic, is what's the deal with, with uh, lanes? Is a 40-lane CPU a must? Um, and I'm curious also, are there like, are there, I think there's what, like 40 and 48? Can you go up to like 64 or something like that? Or, or what's the deal on that? No, 48, I believe, on all of the... Uh, Intel i7 and Xeon chips is still basically 48 lanes, although 40 lanes is pretty much all that's available because it's already in use. Right. So, oh, so it's a 48 lane, but only 40 is available to be used by any of your equipment. 
By your slots. By your slots. Okay. Because the other lanes are already allocated. Gotcha. So that's that's pretty much on all of the actual i7 chips of the Workstation X99 flavor, which is going to be your 6000 series i7s, uh, other than the lowest end chip, which has less lanes, and they do that you know, for comparison reasons on the chips. They're all pretty much going to be you know, 40 lane chips. And a you know, dual Xeon system, you're obviously going to have two of those chips, so each chip you know, handles 40 lanes. All right, so to get more lanes, you've got to go dual, dual core is what you're saying. Then. Well, you got to go dual Xeon, two dual physical Xeon. chips. Yeah, dual In Xeon. other words, each chip, you know, only handles those set amount of lanes. Gotcha. All right, so we've got a question here from Tim Whiting, and I've got Michael Larson on here, so I'm thinking that we had multiple people asking this question, uh, and they'd read on some forums that... Quadro cards have an advantage for faster readback to CPU and memory, and if at high resolutions, high frame rates, you get worse playback with a GeForce card uh, than you would with a Quadro card, and they wonder if you could comment on that statement. Okay, there, there's a lot of variables in this. Okay. Essentially, what they're talking about is a feature of the GPU Direct. Um, that pretty much all the NVIDIA cards have at least some of the features of. Mm -hmm. The Quadro cards have all of them. Okay. Okay. And one of them has to do with that readback uh, feature that they're asking about. Okay. No, the number one caveat right off the bat on this has to do with the difference in hardware in the Quadro cards. When you look pretty much at all the Quadro cards, unless you start getting into the Teslas or the 6000 series Quadro card, the GPU specifications on those cards, which includes uh, the memory specifications as well, uh, the memory bus bandwidth, total you know, uh, performance or throughput of the memory, the amount of CPU or GPU cores available, uh, the clock speed of the GPU cores, they're all significantly lower on all of the Quadro cards versus, for example, the Titan X Pascal and the 1080 Ti. Right. And that, and those specifications decide your latency and performance of the GPU acceleration pipeline or the entire process of the GPU acceleration more than anything else. That is your primary performance indicator, okay? So whatever you would gain from having that direct uh, readout to PCI Express devices, which is what that feature is. It's not just to output devices, it's to you know any PCI Express device that's supportive of it. Uh, whatever benefit you gain from that does not in any way outweigh the, the much lower performance that you get out of the Quadro cards. Gotcha. Now, if you have it's the trade-off again, right? This is always a trade-off, right? Yes, it, there's always a trade-off, <laughs> and 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 this is one of those things where features don't over, you know, basically override or overrule pure power of the cards. Right. So you know, if you're dealing with a Titan X Pascal versus the equivalent Quadro 6000 series card, providing you know they've updated because they're both on different update timeframes uh, and say they're, they're the exact same GPU or you're trying to use a Tesla card, 
and the application will you know use it with a GPU acceleration then potentially providing the application will actually make use of it you could have lower latency and better performance on the quadro card what I have seen though is that's not the case because the applications don't really make use of that feature and I suspect that has to do with the data having to go back to the CPU for other processing before you see it on your screen. Hmm. Because if the data is going to go back to the CPU again for CPU FX processing or any other um, you know, FX that you're doing uh, before it formats out on the screen, before basically you see it in preview and it draws out on the screen, then the entire benefit of that GPU direct um, of being able to read directly to the PCI Express card is not even being used because it still has to go back through the system memory for the CPU to finish doing what it's doing. <laughs> and that is actually what I have seen on any system that has used any of the recent Quadro cards is they have not outperformed with a Blackmagic card, for example. So it's not just whether or not the card supports it, it's whether or not your software enables it and is written in such a way that you can take advantage of it. Right. And yeah. from what I've read on that particular feature, it is far more viable for uh, engineering processing, uh, modeling, and for you know medical use than anything else. And the reason is, is for example, you know, in medical use, when they're processing large sets amount of data like that, um, you know, in, in the medical GPU acceleration rendering, the, f the data is not changing nearly as much in such a large scope as video data is. Right. In, in the, you know, media world, video data is all formatted into a frame and every frame is a new set of data. So the data is constantly fluctuating, it's constantly changing. And in that aspect, the memory, you know, the, the data itself is constantly having to funnel from the system RAM to the system RAM back again, you know, to it again. And, you know, the GPU is constantly wiping out data. So none of the data is really sitting in the GPU RAM very long for it to output to the PCI Express device. Gotcha. So it, I, all the way around, I don't think this feature, at least right now, really gets used by media content applications. Now, when everything in the media content application becomes GPU accelerated, that may change. Gotcha. But as it is right now, everything is not. Gotcha. So it, that's probably why we see it that way. Now, let me ask you another question. Uh, and uh, just generally, Hackintoshes, do you deal with that at all? Do you tread those waters? Is that? No, we don't because that is outside Apple's uh, EULA outside their actual uh, licensing agreement. Gotcha. Any OS X system, or basically any system using OS X uh, under their licensing is required with Apple hardware. Gotcha. So, you know, whenever we've been contacted with it, we, we pretty much told people, we cannot help you with this because this is outside of Apple's licensing. And do you keep up with what people do there and the whether or not they're able to actually get it work or? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely talked to people who have have had success doing it right they've run into problems with it yeah that's kind of my impression too is that 
It's kind of like the type of thing where when you get a build that works, you never really want to move off that build ever again. And that, to me, would be a huge drawback yeah. to trying to do that. Yeah. And the other side of it is what most people don't realize in general, and you don't really realize it until you start using the latest hardware that's available, uh, is that OSX's memory management, at least right now, is not as good as Windows. And that really has an, uh, a pretty, you know, tremendous impact on performance and stability when dealing with GPU acceleration media applications. Right. And I, I, I deal with that quite a bit at the university since the majority of the actual labs are Mac-based there. And they quite often run into, you know, performance issues with Adobe in general due to how OSX's memory management is not not nearly as refined as Windows is. And really your memory performance, your memory management is one of the most critical aspects for GPU acceleration, stability and performance. And there's a lot of factors involved in what is controlling that and the OS is one of those factors. So then, I mean, so you're at school then, how does that manifest itself to the end user? Uh, the, the applications become uh, basically really laggy. In other mm -hmm. words, the latency of the application response is really low. Uh, they become non-responsive. Mm -hmm. They're not able to necessarily open another application that they want to use. Mm -hmm. um, crashing. I mean, gotcha. a lot of times the application just totally crashes right. where they have to, you know, basically end task on it. Right. Uh, in the OSX side, so really it comes down to the entire user experience is affected. Yeah, I've been finding on, on my new Windows rig, one of the things that surprises me is I, I find myself running with a lot more Windows open, and I've kind of assumed yes. it's the 20, 128 gigs of RAM you kind of you have me put in this thing, but maybe it sounds like there's more to it than that. There is. Okay. Um, for example, you, you know, we have one lab with all uh, Mac Pro trash cans in it, and they, all the uh, lab systems have 32 gigs of RAM. And they still run into memory management issues where OSX becomes non-responsive and uh, some of the Adobe apps crash, you know, regardless of how many times that I've re-imaged the systems and changed, you know, the memory settings, what, you know, few Adobe has in that aspect. Yeah. You can take a, a Windows-based system with 32 gigs of RAM and never run into this problem. Gotcha. All right, so let's move off of Hackintoshes and let's uh, get more back into your ballywhack. So we've got a question here from Tristan Summers. And Tristan, before we get to the question, though, I, I want to talk about something that even, um, you know, hard drives always drive me a little bit bonkers because, and I think I've said it before, if not on Mixing Light, maybe even the series, you know, to me, hard drives are drive me nuts because a problem with your hard drive can manifest itself to look like problems with RAM. It can look like problems with graphics cards. And then, you know, you put in a new hard drive that's, I don't know, better configured, and suddenly everything runs awesomely, right? So that drives me nuts. And it kind of the preamble to that is, I don't know a lot about non-volatile memory express or NVMe. And can you give us a, give me a quick rundown of what's the problem they're trying to solve there? NVMe essentially is changing the controller type for the storage. All of your storage before 
you know, really M2 came out, and M2 was really kind of a hybrid move. Uh, it was all based off the SATA controller for storage. Okay. And, you know, SATA, you know, was a progression off of IDE that essentially incorporated some nice features from SCSI that was used before SATA ever came out. Yeah. Uh, which allowing a lot more devices off of a controller using device ID and those kind of things. And, you know, it added tremendous benefit and it pretty much has been at uh, six GBS as far as a uh, bandwidth available off of a SATA controller uh, channel uh, has been there predominantly in all the systems for several years now. And, you know, with mechanical hard drives that did not limit the performance of the drive in any way because the mechanical hard drives are not able to exceed that six GBS for a channel. Right. SSDs change that because they're so much faster. Uh, SSDs can potentially, you know, depending on, you know, where the current technology is in the SSDs and what type of memory is being used in them can go above that six GBS limit. Uh, and 12 GBS for SATA never really became an adoption. Right. Uh, they have it for SAS, but SATA never really moved to it. So what they decided to do, you know, since they didn't really make that increase to SATA, is they decided the way to remove this bottleneck, you know, with the current progression of where piece, you know, computer hardware is going and storage devices are going, is they decided to change the controller to a PCI Express based controller, which is really what the NVMe controller is. Uh, it's basically a PCI Express type controller that bridges over to the PCI Express and doesn't have that six GBS limitation that SATA has. Gotcha. It's for the most part, pretty much an open bandwidth controller as far as it's only really limited by um, what the current technology is for MVME and PCI Express. There are some, you know, still some limitations to NVMe versus PCI Express, but they're progressing that direction. And that's what MVME is. The downside of it is it uses PCI Express lanes, which are already extremely valuable in media content editing systems due to the amount of GPUs that are getting utilized in the systems. So I, at this point, especially since the media for the most part is still not in general in a large scope requiring the speed of NVMe drives, to me, they're just not efficient use of a system's resources because you need those slots and those lanes for other hardware. So then this gets to where the M.2 mount comes into play then. Yes, it does, because it was really kind of the hybrid. But is it designed to basically free up a PCI slot, but give you advantage of the speed of an NVMe type SSD? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, what it is is designed for. Okay. It, I, it, when it first initially came out, it didn't have really much more performance than what a SATA uh, port gave you or a SATA channel gave you okay. on an SSD drive. They have refined it quite a bit more because it's been out quite a bit longer than the NVMe has to where the performance, for example, on the Samsung 960 drives uh, 
uh, are giving you as good or even better performance than many of the NVMe drives. Hmm. Uh, and you do have, you know, because it is a slot-based connection, uh, you do have separate ports for NVMe that you don't use SATA ports for. You know, it's still using slots. But the M.2 connection, from what I've read, it is really was primarily directing towards going towards SATA Express, which was more incorporating SAS and how SAS is used. And it, SATA Express is, is kind of an evolution that Intel has pushed, from what I've read, that uh, SATA Express is where it's heading. And M.2 was kind of the, you know, the stepping stone to get there. Gotcha. Right. Whereas, whereas SATA Express is now, you know, basically using port connections or, you know, where SATA Express is right now is using port connections like uh, SATA was. M.2 was using slot connections. So they're taking, you know, the features of M.2 and having that much greater highway with that bridge connection to the PCI Express and they're putting it into a package like SATA with the SATA Express. Okay, so now this gets us to Tristan's question, which is, and I, I'm not sure I can really, I don't understand the scope of what he's asking, so I'll just ask it and you tell me, you, you interpret it. So if you're using NVMe, doesn't that make the dual Xeon a more compelling choice? It would if the dual Xeon boards had it. <laughs> okay. Without using slots. Okay. Because they would potentially have more PCI Express lanes to use. Right. As of right now, most of the boards do not have um, basically, you know, NVMe slots specifically. Right. Or so you're going to use up so you're just going to use up your regular slots then. You're going to use up your regular slots again. Right. And so then it so, becomes a question of the, you know, the value of those slots. Do you really want to leave it? to those NVMe uh, devices? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the only real way to do it economically is to put a PCI Express expansion chassis on it, for example, and then put, you know, the actual NVMe drives in the expansion chassis and share off of that, you know, particular 16X slot. Mm -hmm. But you would pretty much have to leave whatever slot it's paired with, you know, unused because those slots are still going to be paired you know, as far as, you know, when you put devices in both slots, you right. only get eight, you know, eight lanes out of each slot, right. you know, maximum, unless you're just putting a one X card in the other slot. Right. Um, at that point, if you put in more than a couple NVMe drives in the expansion chassis, you're going to saturate the bandwidth available for that slot for the expansion chassis. Okay. So overall with PCI Express 3.0, it's just really not efficient. Now, when PCI Express 4.0 comes out and you have double the bandwidth again right. of PCI Express 3.0, right. then it becomes very feasible. Right. They also have the option to potentially, you know, basically uh, open up certain slots for expansion chassis uh, to have more potential, you know, bandwidth available just for expansion chassis to really add more slots dedicated, you know, for like storage, NVMe storage, for example. In the general computer market, that is just really not there. Now, in the 
much higher end uh, high performance computing market you do have some of that being looked at right now but that is much more in you know custom design right. than what's really available in in the computer market right now gotcha now tristan also then has a couple more questions switching over to ram um do you know do you need to go with ecc uh for no. our applications not at all yeah ecc has no benefit whatsoever to media content creation what ecc was designed for and what it's used for uh, is essentially for server operations that require the servers to run 24 7 365 right. and the reason that is is essentially memory in the old in the old days and it still can happen now it's just less likely because of how refined memory has become is one the longer it's on without discharging in other words clearing power out of the memory like restarting or shutting it down you have a higher chance of basically a gate randomly flipping due to electromagnetic fields around the computer whether right. they're coming you know from another device inside of it or whether they're coming from you know devices outside of it uh, but you can potentially have a gate that prematurely flips uh, from the state that it's in and when that happens the data for that you know that that gate was storing is now corrupted and ECC was meant to basically, you know, prevent that. Right. When you, you know, run into it, if you have, for example, a bunch of blade servers that are all on top of each other, you have a bunch of, you know, basically magnetic fields that are all intermingling. Right. In that scenario, ECC memory is really kind of critical because there's no telling if you're going to have fields that are going to, you know, basically interact with the equipment below it or above it. And, once again, that's more in the server operation area. Potentially, if you were using blade servers for, you know, render farms, you would want to, you know, go ahead and use ECC just to eliminate that possibility. But outside of that, it has no real value. Now, on the video cards and GPU acceleration, the value it has there is really towards extremely long model renders. And I'm talking long ones, like probably far beyond what you would see used in the media content market, where they're, you know, essentially rendering GPU acceleration data for weeks or months. Oh, wow. Uh, because this, the chances of having a random gate flip, you know, is extremely small. It's like last time I figured it out based on somebody's study where they did basically mem testing for six months straight before they had a random gate flip to actually do the testing it worked out to be something like 0 0.01 or three percent a day right. of leaving the system on right i mean it's so low that you know you could go a month without restarting your system and never run into a problem tristan has a follow-up question which is the benefits of registered ram over what would i call it unregistered ram Unbuffered. Unbuffered. Unbuffered memory is really all you need. Unbuffered the memory. The only time, okay. yeah, the only time you really, you know, look at getting registered memory right. is when you're getting a dual Xeon system. And at that point, getting, for example, you know, DDR4-3000 right. is not going to help you on the dual Xeon system because those chips 
do not support speeds uh, above what the chip is set to for memory speed. They, Intel locked the Xeon chips as far as memory speed goes on this latest revision of them. That was something new that they added, which I did not understand. Hmm. Um, and actually the previous gen, I think, might have had that too, but that, if I remember correctly now at this point. But before, the, he actually did, because in the previous gen, it was locked to 2133. Now it's locked, I think, to 2400 as far as the DDR4 speed. So getting on buffered memory in DDR4 3000, for example, is not going to do you any good. Right. In that case, getting registered memory is, you know, normally going to be a better way to go financially because a lot of times it's cheaper. Uh, the downside is, and what you've seen in the memory manufacturers, and this is, you know, more uh, dealing with uh, my own personal experience more than in general knowing for sure. But because they can use lower grade memory at a higher density um, with registered memory, what they end up doing a lot of times, for example, if I get 32 gig or 16 gig registered DDR4 sticks and they only have to be, you know, 2400 speed capable, they use lower grade memory to build those sticks. So the failure rate's higher. Gotcha. And that has actually been kind of a consequence that I've seen on using registered memory where I've actually seen more registered memory uh, have bad sticks, you know, more often than I have on buffered sticks due to the fact that the memory manufacturers or the DIM manufacturers in this case, uh, but it's your, you know, system RAM manufacturers are using lower grade because they can get away with it. And this is a good place to wrap up our conversation with Eric Bowden as we answer member questions about building out their PCs and making equipment choices. You'll definitely want to stay tuned for part two where things get very, very interesting. For MixingLight.com, I'm Patrick Inhofer. I'll see you next time.